why I can't wear heels is that I was wearing flats in the hill running after John Cornyn. And somehow my flat went flying and John Cornyn had to pick it up and hand it back to me. Well, that's- And I was like, if I was wearing heels, I would have just died, I think. I <laughs> just like, there wouldn't have even been like a shoe to give back. And welcome to the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. I'm here with co-host Matt Iglesias, who didn't get any sleep last night, and uh, Vox congressional reporter Tara Golshan, who didn't get any sleep last night either, because Congress didn't get any sleep last night and had a several-hour shutdown, uh, which we would like to... Uh, I personally would like people to explain to me what the heck happened last night, and maybe you, you, our podcast audience, would be interested in hearing that as well. So, yeah, what we were shut down, and now we are not shut down... Yeah, we had like a brief from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. overnight shutdown. Um, It it all started because, as you remember, uh, about three-ish weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, there was a three-day government shutdown. And the end of that was this two-week spending bill that carried us to February 8th. Within that time, Congress was supposed to negotiate some kind of budget caps deal and some kind of immigration deal. um, And then they would come together and fund the government again on February 8th. Um, And then sometime in the last week, that all seemed to to fall apart. and and that's what. That's so, what well, no, no, no. But wait, let's. But, let's, I mean, let's there's let's a lot get, to break let's, through let's get, here. Let's get more specific, though. Right, so yeah. I was I was in and out last night because uh, my 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 son is sick. He's he's got the flu. That's the main reason I was up. But but dipped into the news. Um, and so they had the parameters of a deal that yes. had bipartisan support, and that had it passed at. 4 p.m. yesterday, like at a civilized hour, right? Like the the deal was already written as of just like regular business hours right. on Thursday, and the deal was announced on Wednesday, right? So, so, so which so, is proactive for Congress, right? And and they and the votes were there. This was not the kind of thing where there was massive suspense, right? And and this wasn't and, even like you know a kicking the can down the road again deal. Like they had the parameters of like an indefinite budget deal, right? Yeah. So what? So what they came to an agreement over is that they would they established budget caps for the next two years that would have uh, increased investments in domestic programs and military spending roughly to around 300 billion dollars over the next two years, which was perceived as kind of it was a win for both Republicans and Democrats because Republicans got that defense spending they've been dying for and Democrats got that domestic program spending increase that they were angling for. In addition to that, they would fund the government for another month to give appropriators who write these individual spending bills time to actually write the legislation. They extended funding for community health centers. They extended funding for the child health insurance program for even longer to 10 years. There was a disaster relief funding. And it was like this. They increased the debt ceiling for another year. There was a lot of kind of goodies in this in this deal. Right. But so then, like, technically, what happened? Like, like, why is it that you and other congressional reporters and members of Congress were up all night? Like, given that the deal was struck on Wednesday and that it wound up passing pretty comfortably. Right. Like, like why was there a meaningless five-hour shutdown? So there is— there, Rand Paul. There, right. So the reason there is a there's actually— there actually was a meaningless shutdown was because of Senator Rand Paul. This deal— this budget deal breaks 
the sequester caps that were established in 2011. Uh, And Rand Paul, who is fighting for uh, his deficit hawkishness, is saying we should not increase the budget caps that were established and that this is fiscally irresponsible. Um, And he decided to filibuster a bill that no one would change and had the votes to pass for from like 6 p.m. to 11.30. And then at 11.30, they were like, okay, you know what? We need to just because of Senate procedure, they couldn't actually vote without Rand Paul until 1 a.m. So at 11.30, they were like, you know what? Let's just recess Senate so that Rand Paul can like get off the floor. We'll technically shut down the government at 12.01 a.m. and then come back. And then around 1.30, 1.40, the Senate passed it. So this isn't so even that's one like, roadblock. This isn't even like the, you know, 2013 shutdown where like Ted Cruz, in theory, had something he wanted to get. This isn't like three weeks ago where Democrats had something they wanted to get. This is literally like Rand Paul saying, I don't have a solution here, but I would like to make my objections known at great de- at great length and annoyance. I mean, he had he had an amendment that would have stopped them from increasing the sequester caps. I mean, his solution was, let's just not do this. But like everybody else was like, no, we want to do this. So we just have to wait you out and then we will do this. Right, and so the waiting him out just happened to have pushed it past right. the deadline. But it, so it's it's worth saying a, a point here, right? Because the, there's a lot of moving pieces to this deal. And most, I don't know, media narratives tend to like zoom in on just a couple mm-hmm. aspects of it. But like a big thing here is that the overall structure of this is that like Republicans in a stylized sense like want the increased military spending. And right. so the fact that there's a huge increase in military spending is a big win for them. And then some of the other stuff is like things from their perspective that they did to get Democrats votes. Rand Paul is a Republican, but like Rand Paul does not favor a giant increase in military spending. And so therefore, from the inside the Rand Paul perspective, this is a bill in which there are concessions to Democrats on domestic spending and there's a win for Republicans that he doesn't care about. Right. right. I mean, it made sense why for Rand Paul, Rand right. Paul did this. I mean, it was in the spirit of Rand Paul. Right. The, the but thing it made is, the though, rest like, of us wait. <laughs> the the irony about the sequester caps being the baseline here is that the sequester was, you know, Congress's attempt at a commitment mechanism to get itself to, like, engage in some actual proactive budgeting by, say, by imposing cuts in the future that were going to be painful to Republicans on the military and to Democrats on domestic spending. Like, that was an attempt, you know, Congress's attempt to be responsible by making itself hurt in the future that failed miserably, that, you know, resulted in a lot of pain on both sides. And so, you know, this is something of a return to the status quo of several years ago, where neither party is willing to say, that they're not going to increase spending, period. They're just going to trade off military for domestic well, spending. And, if, if, and Rand Paul is go, is coming out of a period in which he kind of de facto got what he wanted because no one else in Congress got what they wanted by saying, no, no, I like that. Let's go back to that. Well, except, I mean, you know, if you go back, whatever it was, eight years ago to, to before the sequester debate, right, the, the structural situation at that time was that Spending on healthcare and retirement programs was just set to grow slowly and steadily over time because the population is aging and because healthcare costs grow over time. And the tax level, which at that time was the Bush era baseline, was too low to support that over the long term. So 
you had this big standoff in which at that time Republicans were saying we need to resolve this exclusively by cuts in the retirement and health care programs. And Obama was saying, no, we need to do both. We need to do the long-term cuts in retirement and health programs and in exchange also do some tax increases on the rich. They couldn't reach an agreement around that. They came to the sequester with the idea like these painful cuts to domestic spending and the military will force Congress to make a deal along those lines. They didn't make a deal along those lines. Then taxes went up because Obama won the election. Bush tax cuts partially um, partially expired. Trump won. Taxes went back down again. Trump has promised not to cut Social Security or Medicare. Trump tried to cut Medicaid very steeply in the Obamacare repeal bills, but basically failed. So all those long-term debt drivers were just like still there. And then what they decided to do last night was essentially call it off right. the commitment mechanism, right? That like, they said like, they're not going to, I mean, congressional Republicans are obviously not going to raise taxes. They're not seriously trying to cut Social Security or Medicare. Right. And— They don't have the political capability to cut Medicaid. Right. Right. And in a sense, I mean, one thing I've heard from professional budget hawks are, like, steamed about this because now spending's going up after taxes were just cut. But to to give Congress its due, right, like— the sequester and the budget caps were never going to address the long-term debt issue, which is driven by taxes and retirement programs. The point of the sequester was, as Dara was saying, as a commitment device to force them to do those things. But since it isn't forcing them to do those things, there's like actually no point in having it. It's like if we reach an agreement to say, like, well, we're going to keep stabbing ourselves in the arm until we come up with like a better way to explain this— and then it's like seven years later, we're just like all stabbing ourselves. You know, like at, at some point, like, yeah, like why not just stop? But they also like for the past since the sequester caps were put into effect every two years have been like, let's pass a measure to stop stabbing ourselves in the arm. Recently they have. But they, they I mean, they implemented it for a couple of years. Yeah, that's they? true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. And they've 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 used stabbing themselves in the arm as the alternative to cutting the limb off entirely. Right. If like keeping this the, like keeping existing funding levels is the easy way to go and you can't negotiate an actual deal and you're facing a government shutdown every three months. But the, the question that I have here is like during the beginning of the sequester debate, um, it's this was one of the respects in which it seemed like the. Members of Congress who came in in the 2010 wave, the kind of not, you know, regardless of how you think about the Tea Party as a conservative movement, it certainly seemed that the first elected officials coming into Congress as part of that Tea Party wave maybe were going to break from the Republican consensus on increased military spending and were going to be a little bit more concerned with the bottom line of budgeting and spending. And it's interesting because, Tara, you've definitely been like among the best reporters on talking about the role of the House Freedom Caucus in the current, you know, Republican Party and the House Republican Caucus in particular. But I haven't had a sense of, you know, it seems that they're just as hawkish, if not more so, as anybody else, and that this is something where they've just gone from being a distinct strain of conservatism to just being where you hang out in the house if you're super duper conservative. Yeah, I mean, and this this comes to kind of the, the second roadblock that we we had last night, and which I'll get to in a bit. But yeah, the, the conservatives in the House seem to have shifted on increasing spending for defense. Um, I remember 
gosh, it, it was early last year when they were first starting to talk about budget caps. Uh, and I was I spent a lot of time waiting outside of Freedom Caucus meetings uh, and they would bring in the chair of the Armed Services Committee to talk about why they should increase defense spending. And Mark Meadows, who's the chair of the Freedom Caucus, was like, yeah, I was actually surprised how open my members were to this kind of increase because that's not – I mean, they usually don't want that kind of increase in spending. I mean, sure, there are some purists among them, but largely we have seen – they've completely switched on being okay with massive increases in defense spending to the point that two weeks ago when they were negotiating – um, a way to get to yes on the last uh, short-term spending bill in January, they actually struck a deal that Paul Ryan would push a short-term spending bill that only increased funding to the military and didn't increase funding to domestic programs. So now what we reached to last night was that this budget caps deal saw kind of like a mini conservative revolt in the House, and they were like, we do not want to increase money to def- uh, domestic programs by this much, and we will not vote for this budget cap steal, which forced Paul Ryan to then seek support from Democrats because he could not whip enough votes in the House among Republicans alone. So this, let me this get this, evolution just to of make sure I have this of, yeah. straight. They insisted three weeks ago on a deal that increased military spending and then voted against it this week because it also increased domestic spending. Yes. Having already conceded so that together, they didn't care about budget, the like deficits. No, they, they were still just care about the deficit, that, but they don't care about it when it comes to tax cuts or increasing military spending. Right. right. So they don't care about the deficit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting, part of what's interesting about the, the evolution is that the people aren't replaced, right? That, you right. know, there was clearly a view at some point that the new Tea Party-ish political grouping was libertarian in nature, right? So, like, Freedom Caucus was a good name, right? They didn't call themselves the Relentless Authoritarianism <laughs> Caucus, right? Well, there's also the Liberty Caucus of the Libertarians. Sure, right. <laughs> but, but, I mean, but, but and, and there are, I mean, Rand Paul is an example. There's not nobody who mm-hmm. came out of that cohort who is from a libertarian Orientation. Yeah, in the House you had Justin Amash as right. well. And but Thomas the, Massey was also, I think, yeah. But the mainstream evolution of Freedom Caucus politics relative to the overall GOP center of gravity has been that they are more anti-immigration, more defense hawkish. You know, they're just like more right wing in a in a broad sense, like across the board on everything. It's like all Republicans love the military, but the Freedom Caucus double loves the military. You know, like they're and, and I mean and this is Trump himself, right? That like Trump is the least libertarian figure in Republican Party politics probably ever. And the Freedom Caucus is the group of House conservatives who are maximally Trump aligned, right? Like there's no, there's no actual like freedom in, in the Freedom Caucus, which I mean is consistent with the, the normal, you know, the Austrian Freedom Party is like their far right party, um, th- things like that. Um, but it's, it's a really striking because like there were a lot of takes in the Obama era about a libertarian moment in American politics and, and various things like that. But it's the – like most of the people involved in that 
are the Trumpers. Like there isn't like a like a tension between the freedom wing of Republicans and the authoritarian wing of Republicans. Like it's the same wings. I mean, I mean, my very favorite, and I I may have used this anecdote on a past weeds podcast because it is to me the best quote from an elected official on the current state of American politics is from Representative Tom Massey, who like Rand Paul comes out of Kentucky, I think was also elected in 2010, and you know, is is one of the more ideologically consistent members of this wave. And he told uh, a, a local media outlet in 2015 when it was clear that Rand Paul's campaign for president was struggling. He was talking about how, you know, when he first ran for office, he saw these constituents who were super enthused about, you know, what the Tea Party stood for and about reining in spending and about the debt. And he was really excited that he was, you know, representing this new wave of public opinion. And then he saw that these were exactly the same people who were gravitating toward Trump and other, you know, figures that represented a very different conservative politics. And he said, I realized that they didn't actually like what people like me and Rand stood for. They were just voting for the craziest son of the bitch in the room. That's a very pejorative way to put it. And Massey has kind of come around on Trump. But there's definitely a dynamic of you go for the people who represent the most countercultural or like hashtag resistance to the existing regime. And during the Obama era, that looked like the Tea Party. And currently it looks like a president who tells NFL players not to kneel during the national anthem. It's kind of some of these politicians in the Freedom Caucus might have seen that same shift and realized that they need to represent a different polity. And some of them may actually, you know, believe that themselves, that it's there's no significant contradiction between having been deficit hawks under Obama and not being deficit hawks now, because the point is that you're sticking it to the liberals. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why the position the Freedom Caucus has been in under Trump has been particularly interesting, because, I mean, they developed under the Obama administration where they had a lot more leeway to stick to their guns. And now they their base has been activated by the president. So they have to kind of side with the president. And it both gives them an opportunity to actually govern and to be a part of legislation in a way that was never the case, even when Republicans we're in charge of the House under Boehner. I mean, Boehner did not pay attention to the House Freedom Caucus as much as he could. Um, but it also limits them in actually sticking to their principles because Trump doesn't always stick to the core conservative principles on spending. Or So let, let's talk about what's actually in this deal. So it's $300 billion in extra spending over two years. Um, 160 billion of that 300 billion is for the military side. I spent about a day and a half not understanding what exactly the 160 billion in military spending was going to. It turns out the answer is that this is a budget caps deal, which is simply sets the table yes. for the appropriation. <laughs> so it is now mm-hmm. up to the armed services right. subcommittee of the appropriations committees to decide what 160 billion dollars are. Um, if you look at the social media from Republican leaders like Paul Ryan and stuff, they, they are acting as if there's some really specific, acute military need that this is addressing. But that's not – I don't know. Like that, that's not how Congress works is, is the answer to my riddle. There is, there is no answer to the question, what is this money right. for? Um, then on the domestic side, right, it's a – what it's like a, it's 130 140 yeah i think it's like i'm schumer's office saying 131 i think more accurately like 128 and it's a real 
it's a smorgasbord right. of policy. Right. Um, the disaster relief is an important part it's of it. It's a huge chunk of it. So it's, right. it's $80, $80 billion of it. And is this per like for particular disasters or is, is any of this going to Puerto Rico? I, yeah, I think like Puerto Rico, Texas, Florida, California are all kind of lumped. It like it like replenishes FEMA's right. accounts, okay. right? And so then what specifically happens is is another question down the road. Um, it extends the CHIP funding right. for extra years. It delivers the community health centers funding. Mm-hmm. I, I Something that a lot of Democratic members seem excited about is the uh, child care development block grants, um, which... I don't know. Um, it helps. It helps poor people allegedly. Um, there's uh, NIH money, um, which right. I think had been one of the big sequester victims. Was was the NIH right? Uh, what else? Then? There's 20 billion for infrastructure. Oh yeah. Oh hey, yeah. wait. So this is Infrastructure Week. It like snuck right by us. <laughs> yes. Every every week is Infrastructure Week. It was a secret Infrastructure Week. Now 20 billion is a lot less than the one trillion. That is that is true. That and we, is this is this we another tax thing, or is it like that that we now get to go into details about what this twenty billion is for, or do we know what the twenty billion is? We for? don't. I mean, no. This is a cap. This okay. is all part of the cap. Yeah. So <laughs> great. So 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 we get to see infrastructure week in the next like five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's interesting because that's not normally how infrastructure is handled. No. Um, in Congress, so the, you know, whereas with the defense, it's normal, right? It's like you set a budget target and then the appropriators work it out. Uh, transportation infrastructure is not normally done that way, so it sort of remains to be seen uh, what will what will come of that. Um, I was. I don't want to say puzzled, but there's like a line, there's like a bullet point on their lists about college affordability for firemen. Yeah, and police officers and teachers. Yeah. I don't really know more about this other than that bullet point. (laughs) I tried to ask some higher education experts about this. Like, is there a big issue with like, do firefighters need college degrees? People... People don't seem to have really great answers as to what that's about. I mean, it would not surprise me if like... I think that something that we've seen that we've talked about a little bit on here, but that you really saw around the Super Bowl is that there's there's this idea that it should be non-controversial to treat police officers and firefighters as heroes. So it wouldn't surprise me if something that was a liberal priority because college affordability or because teachers became bipartisan by saying, well, we think the really important people are police officers and firefighters. I and completely understand. I just mean— Yeah, no, I, I don't know as a policy thing. We've, but like, we've classically had certain loan forgiveness programs for teachers because teachers all have to go to college right. to get jobs as teachers. I. I'm a little confused about the firefighters, but, but we so will see. I feel yeah, like I'll, the, I'll kind of, about it. the <laughs> bottom line here appears to be that, you know, everything after a several months or several years, depending on how you're thinking about it, of Congress being absolutely unwilling to deal with must-pass legislation any more than, like, you know, two hours before a deadline, it seems like this is a pretty broad effort to get some stuff off of Congress's plate, right? Like, the debt ceiling limit was supposed to be the next must-pass bill. They're dealing with that. They're, like, taking action on CHIP, which they already had extended for six years. Like, this is—there's a lot of—and, you know, certainly as Congress looks toward the midterm elections in November and, like, you expect the pace of legislating to slow down some. This does seem like a relatively proactive effort, which is interesting, of course, because the one thing that isn't in this deal that was supposed to be an urgent must-pass item is anything on immigration. Right. Um, and so I, I gather that this is something that House Democrats have been very much 
you know, torn over and that this was something of a problem. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk through, like, what, you know, why that didn't end up causing another shutdown and, like, what Democrats think is going to happen now, because they've been saying for weeks that this needs to attach to a must-pass bill and there are no must-pass bills left. Well, there, well, there is a, there's the actual appropriation okay, bill, so March twenty like third. Well, there's, um, cert- but there, are, there certainly aren't yes. any before March fifth, which is the inflection right. point for when they, people start losing work. They permits. definitely did. They did try to clean their their plate um, as much as they could this time around. Uh, yeah. So what you're, that was the the second kind of biggest roadblock last night after Rand Paul's filibuster was that nobody knew what was going to happen with the final House vote for the entire night until the run-up to that final House vote, then we saw it passed. And that was largely because, so Nancy Pelosi, Paul Ryan, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell negotiated this budget deal. But then this week, Nancy Pelosi came out and said, look, I support everything that is in this budget deal as I helped negotiate it. However, because it does not, it sets aside the issue of DACA and immigration, I cannot vote for this this cap steal. And she said it personally. Um, this escalated over the next couple of days. On Wednesday, she went on an eight-hour floor speech. She was reading stories of dreamers. She was, it was, in, in the I think, one of the longest floor speeches in history in the House. Yeah. Uh, in four-inch heels. In, yeah, in four-inch heels. Um, and, and it was completely about DACA. And it was a stand for DACA. And she said that a lot of other Democrats will come behind me. Um, Then by Thursday morning, there was a lot of kind of wishy-washy rhetoric coming out of Democratic leadership. Were they whipping against this budget cap deal? Were they just telling people, no, vote your conscience, but us leaders are not voting for it? Um, And by the afternoon, the Democratic caucus had a meeting. The House Democratic caucus had a meeting. And essentially, Nancy Pelosi told everyone, vote your conscience. I am not voting for it, which a lot a lot of people came out of the meeting saying, look, Nancy Pelosi is very persuasive. And all we will say is that she's not voting for it and she is very persuasive. Uh, and so it started to kind of build a lot of tension of uh, and this comes back to the conservative revolt that we saw. So Paul Ryan did not have enough votes with just Republicans, even though he has a big enough majority to pass legislation with just Republicans. So he needed Democrats to sign on to this. And Democrats have not signed on to any of the spending bills in the past that have not included a DACA fix. And and Nancy Pelosi was basically saying, yeah, I'll do it again. And so there was this big question. By the end of the night, it became clear that there were enough Democrats who actually did want this cap steal to pass. And I think Nancy Pelosi also wanted this cap steal to pass. But um, that's that was kind of the big tension of the night. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to go, like strategy-wise, there's a lot to go in behind that, um, that we're I don't know if, if there was a lot of forethought. I, I talked to a lot of Democratic staffers yesterday that were just like, we have no idea what's going on. It's very confusing. It's like very frustrating because we thought we had this deal. This like could jeopardize the Senate's immigration negotiations next week if we shut down the government. But also they recognize that the House is a really huge obstacle for immigration, the immigration fight ahead, uh, because – Conservatives in the House keep getting assurances from Paul Ryan that he will whip um, this Goodlatte bill, which is like a very conservative immigration bill that has no bipartisan support and has no chance of going anywhere in the Senate. Um, And Paul Ryan has also said he won't – 
he won't vote on immigration legislation that doesn't have the support of the majority of the Republican uh, caucus in the House. So those two are extremely limiting factors for for House Democrats who who want to see some kind of immigration reform on Trump. But so, I mean, the basic story here seems to be that Democratic leaders somehow over the period of months talked themselves into a stand on DACA that they didn't actually believe in. Right? To shut down the government over that, it? I don't even want to say to shut down the government over it because I think that, like, casts it in an excessively aspersionsy way. But that, like, the, the order of operations here was that once upon a time, conservatives wanted their wall. Mm-hmm. And Democratic leaders were keeping the wall out of various appropriations negotiations, budget deals, CR deals, right? They kept saying but like— that was possible because congressional Republicans went to Trump and said, none of us is particularly jazzed about this either. This is not the hill we're willing to die I, Absolutely. On. But I'm just saying that was the, the, the stand, the like symbolic stand yeah. on immigration that Democratic yeah. leaders were taking. Because recognizing Democratic leaders do not have like a lot of objective leverage in the minority, right? But like that was what they were doing, was like they were going to block the wall. And then— Trump canceled DACA, and because he's Trump, he does everything in a very confusing way. You know, and, like, the message out of the administration was not clear. But, like, one thing that some people thought that they were hearing was that Trump was making a power move to get wall funding. So then Democrats, it seemed to me, started backing themselves into a position of offering a concession to Trump which was we will back off our opposition to wall funding to, like, put DACA back in. But people don't like to portray themselves as being weak in politics. So they tried to take this offer of a concession to Trump and spin it as, like, an aggressive power move. And that was, like, we're going to insist on including DACA in a government appropriations bill. Right. And that was actually their way of saying, like, we're going to make concessions on wall funding, not their way of saying we're going to have a government shutdown. But then in the in the tumbler of like media and activists and like different statements from people who want to run for president, it got flipped around over the winter to like now the progressive demand is like no government funding bill without a DACA solution. Meanwhile, the administration is having its, like, parallel figuring out what's happening process in which they end up landing on, we're not swapping a wall that serious immigration hawks don't think accomplishes anything. For the DREAM Act, we want, like, these, like, big, really meaningful, substantive concessions on legal immigration, asylum, like, stuff we've been talking about on, on a million Friday episodes. So you wound up with, like, a totally different dynamic from the one... That, that had initially begun, and Democratic leaders never wanted to, like, come out before the microphone and just, like, say, look, like, we favor the DREAM Act, but, like, appropriations negotiations are about appropriations, not about immigration. And if we can strike a deal that gets money for programs that we think are important, like, we like that and want to pass it. So you've got this weird thing where, like, Nancy Pelosi basically spent the whole week, like, tanking her position, right? Where, like, she keeps saying, like, 
I'm not going to vote for this bill, blah, blah, blah. But like making it clear to everybody that she wants the bill to pass. It it didn't like fool activists, to be clear. No, nobody was fooled. Ella Nielsen, our congressional reporter who covers Democrats, ran into some some dreamers on the Hill yesterday. And they're like, look, we know that she's standing on the floor for eight hours reading our stories and behind closed doors negotiating for at least enough people to vote for this bill. Right. So, I mean, I think I think that this is part of the story. I think that there are two other kind of strains going on here. One is the activists who, like, it is known and not controversial that there is no immigration bill that Republicans care enough about that they would like, that they are interested in bringing it to the floor of both chambers and passing as like on its own. Like even the Goodlatte bill wasn't something that they were pushing before DACA became a thing. It, you know, might, if Paul Ryan is whipping it, maybe it'll pass the House. But like, it's not just that it wouldn't pass a 60 vote threshold in the Senate, but that like Republican leadership in the Senate isn't particularly interested in the things that the Goodlatte bill focuses on in his policy. Like, they're not interested in making it mandatory for all employers to use the E-Verify system. Like, that's not what their priorities are. And because different factions in the Republican Party have different immigration priorities, there isn't anything that, you know, and this this makes it a problem for Democrats, essentially. That there's nothing that Democrats can offer that Republicans will say, all of us consider this a fair trade, um, which is how you get into the problem of the wall, because the wall has always been a priority for Donald J. Trump more than it's been a priority for anyone else in his administration, much less the Republican Party. But being aware of all of that, immigration activists knew pretty early on that the only way you were going to get Congress to actually act, even though they were saying that everybody wanted to address this in the next six months, was to attach something to a must-pass bill. And they were making the calculus that a certain number of Republican members would want to get the issue of DACA off their plates badly enough that they would be willing to swallow a vote, you know, one hard vote attached to a must-pass bill. They wouldn't have anything that they wanted to, that, like, they could agree on wanting an exchange. That You know, that was kind of the the argument that led to no DACA without, no must-pass bills without DACA becoming an immigration activist demand in December. And then from there, a progressive activist demand more broadly in January. So, like, at the same time that's happening, though, there still are, there there is still an ongoing debate within the Democratic Party about the extent to which immigration should be the issue that they're willing to take a stand on going into the 2018 midterms. Because on the one hand, it's something where, you know, Donald Trump is extremely unpopular, including among the Democratic base. This is an issue where he's taken a stand that is contrary to most public opinion and is very aggressive and is really rallying the base. On the other hand, there are a lot of Democrats, especially House Democrats, who are worried that they're abandoning white voters, that they're, you know, going all in on an issue that is very divisive, that it would be better to stand for bread and butter issues. So with the budget caps deal, when you're not just talking about being looking like the responsible party and keeping the government open, which I think has been part of the democratic calculus in the past, that like they want to be the adults in the room, but actually a deal that includes domestic spending for things that Democrats have considered priorities. You were hearing some noise from House Democrats like, we've been saying that we care about more than immigration, and now we're making it sound like all we care about is immigration again. And that was a big problem for them because of this ongoing debate about, you know, is the Democratic Party going to be able to both galvanize a progressive and ethnically diverse base 
and retain or win over enough, you know, white voters to to be able to, like, win back some swing districts. But I wouldn't just say white voters. I mean, the the Congressional Hispanic Caucus took, like, an official caucus position against this bill on the grounds that it doesn't have dreamer provisions. Uh, but about a half dozen Latino Democrats voted for the bill, and that's because they mostly represent districts in Texas right. that were impacted by flood relief. Their constituents are mostly Latinos, the difficulty in all these things, right, is like part of the way Democrats got people of color as their key electoral base is that people of color are very disproportionately dependent on things like community health centers, uh, CHIP, you know, child development block grants. Um, it happens to be the case that the geography of this flooding hit a lot of heavily minority districts in Texas. Um, but it's it, the, the key th- I, I think like disconnect in like like the the discourse around this issue versus the reality of the issue is that even when when people, whether they're like generic progressive groups or they're democratic members of Congress, were like signing on for this DACA demand, nobody was signing on for deprioritizing other progressive priorities in the budget negotiation, right? right? Now, if Chuck Schumer had gone into this room, you know, some months ago to negotiate and had said, like, I know you guys want a big increase in military spending, and my number one priority in this deal is deportation protections for DACA recipients, I think maybe he could have gotten that. But that would have meant not making Republicans swallow a bunch of domestic spending, right? It's like you can get some stuff in a negotiation, but, like, it has to balance And in the case of a negotiation when Republicans have the majority in the House and the majority in the Senate and the majority in the White House, like, the balance is going to tilt toward Republican priorities. And I think, like, one one way of construing this is, like, well, Democrats totally sold out on DACA or, like, Democrats got nothing or they did nothing with their leverage. And they didn't get nothing. They just, like, they got a bunch of stuff that wasn't about immigration. And there was never a frank discussion like, in the community as to, like, what are we saying about the rank ordering of these different priorities? And, like, I personally am not as enthusiastic about this domestic discretionary spending as a lot of House Democrats are. And a lot of House Democrats sort of like the sequester dynamic where they get to count military spending as a concession to Republicans when actually they favor it. And I'm more, you know, so like I look at this and I feel like this is like not that great a deal. We're like giving the military a ton of money they don't really need. We're spending money on domestic programs, but some of those programs are not that valuable. We're not doing anything for immigrants, which like I'm really jazzed up about. But I also see it the other way, right? Like given the spending priorities that most Democrats have, they, like, got a lot of their spending priorities done while having, like, almost no, like, they lost all the elections and they're still getting to fund a lot of the stuff that they care about. And Trump wins. I mean, deporting dreamers is this kind of weird policy booby prize, right? Like, Defense Secretary Mattis was out yesterday making promises he cannot keep, saying, like, But we're not going to deport the, like, several hundred Dreamers who are currently serving in the military. And now, to be clear, nobody should take that promise seriously. But the fact that he wants— Honestly, you should take nothing that the Trump administration says about what is happening to DACA seriously because no one who's being asked about it has any idea what's going on. But the fact that he's saying it, it's 
telling. It's, I, I mean, right. I think a, a subtle element of that dynamic here is that for a lot of House Democrats whose constituents are progressive but aren't necessarily Latino or immigrants or have, like, skin in the game on this, it's kind of like the more the merrier, man. Like, you go dragging people off aircraft carriers into chains. Like, we'll just run against that. Right. Right? Like, whereas— Democrats don't want to run against funding the military. Democrats are thrilled to run against deporting Dreamers. Now, actually staging government shutdown over Dreamers is a different thing. Right, and this has always been the kind of the thought that eventually you can get to a majority on on passing some kind of bill, right? Because the logic has always been that moderate Republicans, especially moderate Republicans living in, like, Latino-heavy districts, like in California, uh, don't want to, neither want to be the office getting protested against if a dreamer gets, like, you know, fired from their jobs, from their job in their district and taken away in chains. Nor do they want to be running this fall against someone who's saying, you know, Representative Jeff Denham is, like, the reason that this dreamer in our district got deported. You know, they don't—they understand that dynamic coming, and theoretically that should be enough to light a fire under their butts. Well, this was the—and this was the first shutdown threat from Democrats that directly impacted the political headwinds going against them on immigration. I mean, we've seen the Senate Democrats, because they have a slim—they have more leverage on spending fights in the the past six months in the Senate, have really been taking the charge on we will vote— against these spending bills and we will shut down the government. But it's Nancy Pelosi who is facing the real political challenge of getting a vote on immigration. And she did not have the leverage to to make that case and make that demand until now. And so she did. But, well, she did and she didn't. But I think that's kind of the, the, the politics of the Republican Party in the House are something that are going to come to real focus in the next few weeks because— if you talk to House Republicans last January and ask them how they were if they were going to start working on immigration, Donald Trump's like main campaign promise, they would laugh in your face because it is the most divisive issue in the House. Right, you like, wrote a piece full of Republicans right. laughing. Like in Paul your Ryan face. does not want to like he doesn't want to touch immigration. It would completely destroy his caucus. Um, anything they put up for a vote will will even the conservative bill, even if they whip it. I'm. Like, I think the whip has been kind of slow, probably because it is facing serious divisions within the Republican Party. And so this is was a real moment, I think, for Democrats where now that they've reached this point where they keep saying, oh, we're going to attach the spending and DACA fight together, we'll, we'll shut down the government over it. They have kind of finally coalesced against that position. It was the first time where it was addressing the issue head on. Um, but— they had this caps deal. So but now we get, in theory, next week we get to start an immigration debate in the Senate, um, or at least we have been told that Mitch McConnell is going to start an immigration debate in the Senate. And for being about to start on the floor of the Senate, uh, anyone, people who have you know asked either of us what the heck is going on have usually been met with shrugs. People who have, you know, it's not— for obvious reasons involving the government almost, the government shutting down for a few hours last night, it's not like this has been top of anyone's agenda uh, in the last few days. And yet somehow they're going to be discussing this, like, massive, hairy, complicated issue. But so what McConnell's doing—this is worth saying because there's an irony here. I, I think— I think a, a lot of normies feel that, like, this is how Congress ought to operate. Right. Right, which is, like, the leader will say, okay, like— 
we can't have total anarchy here. So like in my capacity as leader, I'm going to say we're going to set aside some time to address the topic of immigration. And then there is going to be an open debate on immigration in which members can introduce their amendments and say what they want. I, I mean, I, I think if you if you pull away from all one's knowledge of how Washington works, this kind of sounds like a storybook. Right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington vision. Now, the reality is that that's not how you legislate. Right. No. Right. And that's and, not how McConnell or Harry Reid, for that matter, ran, quote unquote, open debates on the Senate. Or floor. anybody. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I mean, this is what this is what it, it, it smells like. I, I don't want to say it, it seems suspicious. Right. It, right. It, it, it seems like this is a way of creating a situation in which everybody out there, whatever their politics are, gets to. If they, if you're a Republican and you feel like you have to say you want to help dreamers, this will create a lot of opportunities to go on the record as having sponsored a bill that will do that, as having voted for a bill that will do that without producing any legislation that actually effectuates that. And this is something we've seen on – particularly in the 2006-2007 immigration era where – in contrast to 2013, like the bill didn't pass and yet it wasn't entirely clear on the record like who had killed it or why. Because when you have a chaotic debate like this, it creates a lot of opportunity for people to insert poison pills. To It's, it's just it's, – it's not how you legislate. Right. So there are, there are a couple of ways that you legislate if you actually want to pass a bill, right? One is that you like – introduce a bill, send it through committee, put it through the committee amendment process, put it on the floor, have amendments on the floor. And like the broader process here is kind of a snowballing effect, right? You like get enough votes to get it out of committee, sometimes by giving concessions to people who need particular things. You get enough votes on the floor to get it eventually passed. And the reason that this has been possible with immigration bills in 2006 and 2007 and 2013 is that it's a complicated enough issue if you're addressing the entire immigration system as a whole that like Orrin Hatch really cares about high-skilled work visas. You can give Orrin Hatch something he wants on high-skilled work visas, and he'll be willing to vote for something that, like, includes a lot of stuff that Orrin Hatch doesn't care about. You can, you know, throw, like, several billion dollars at the border as the uh, Corker-Hoven floor amendment did in 2013, and you'll get a block of Republicans who say, okay, our major political liability on this issue has been assuaged. We're now willing to vote for it. That's been the argument of people who have pushed for a broad, comprehensive immigration approach. And they've been met with people who have said, well, Congress doesn't like passing big bills because there are, for every reason to vote for a bill, there's a reason to vote against it. Why don't we try instead a piecemeal approach where we're dealing with discrete aspects of the immigration system, you know, distinctly? And that's been usually the Republican position for the last decade. Now what McConnell is doing is He's not endorsing any kind of comprehensive or piecemeal approach. There is an assumption that whatever bill gets passed will include something related to DACA recipients, whether it's a permanent, uh, you know, whether it's a, an indefinite legalization program for DACA recipients, whether it's broader than just DACA recipients and includes other dreamers, whether it's just a one or three year quote unquote extension and how on earth that works. Like there isn't anything that Mitch McConnell is saying has to be in this bill. And furthermore, instead of using any of the multiple bills that have already been proposed and saying, we're going to start here and then people can fight, you know, to pull it to the left or right, he's 
keeping his cards close to his chest and saying, we're going to start with a shell bill. We're not going to start with an immigration bill. At some point, Mitch McConnell will introduce like whatever bill he wants, but we have no idea what bill Mitch McConnell wants because he has said nothing about it. So there's this extremely broad and hairy and complicated issue that McConnell has made no effort to focus and that meanwhile, he's kind of reserving the right to just try to ram something through without giving anyone any sense of what that might look like. I mean, a lot of that comes back to the the reluctance from Republican leaders to address immigration in the first place. I mean, they know it's divisive. The, the irony here is that I think if you're thinking about what, like, the typical Republican wants out of a policy approach to dreamers, right, the answer is actually DACA. Right. Like DACA in a universe in which there are 10 or 11 million undocumented immigrants in which only a couple hundred thousand can be feasibly deported in any given year, in which people with extremely deep roots in the United States are incredibly unlikely to self-deport no matter what you do, and in which the politics of immigration have pros and cons depending on how it's framed, and the dreamers are the most immigrant-friendly possible framing, a measure that protects dreamers from being put into deportation proceedings while preventing them from becoming U.S. citizens who can vote and who can sponsor visas for family members is a really good— And it includes a mechanism where, you know, the government is, you know, is forcing them to every two years pay $500 to prove that they can still work and haven't committed any crimes. It's like, it's, you know, it it keeps them from any allegations of any indefinite amnesty. Right. This is a really good, actually, like, Republican solution to the issue that allows the ICE deportation machinery to keep rolling in less contentious ways, working on a much bigger chunk of the population while segmenting off the most uh, sympathetic cases in a, like, principled and organized kind of way. And this is why when Obama rolled this program out, Republicans did not sue. They didn't shut down the government. Like, they didn't flip out over this. Like, they had blocked the DREAM Act because they had, you know, I I don't agree with their position, but I I understand why Republicans did not want to create a million-plus new U.S. citizens who would be doing their own, you know, family visa sponsorships and, and other things like this. This was a good solution that, like, achieved their core equities in this. And the Trump administration, which has this weird hollowness at its center where the president of the United States is not well-informed about politics or policy and is subject to the different machinations of different factions has destabilized this situation. And you can see in these repeated calls for like, well, maybe they'll extend it for a year and stuff. And then then Dara is here screaming like, no, you can't do that. But that's just emphasizing that like this – The thing that would achieve what Republicans would have wanted would have been for Trump to have just not canceled this in the first place. That, like, would not have turned Donald Trump into, like, an immigration amnesty super hawk. And it would let them just keep saying, like, no, Congress is not going to debate new immigration legislation. We're going to keep doing these sweeps. We're going to get who we get. We're going to deport who we deport. We're going to push for more funding and, like, keep on keeping on. And instead they've, like— They've shot themselves in the foot in a in a weird way where they don't have a path forward that that they support within themselves. I mean, it's a tragedy because 
you know, people are going to suffer enormously for it. But if they could wave a magic wand and just take this back, it would put them in a much better position. So everything you have said is true, but I think that there's, it's even, it is even more interesting and tragic because it's not just that Republicans weren't super gung-ho about fighting DACA when Obama first rolled it out in 2012. It's that in the weeks and months before that, Marco Rubio had been saying, we need to do something for the Dreamers. I'm going to introduce a bill to help the Dreamers. I'm going to be a leader on the Dreamers. And no bill was ever introduced. And then Obama rolled out DACA and there was just, you know, no indication from Rubio that he was, nothing in DACA would have prevented a congressional, you know, bill to actually offer any kind of legislative protection. Marco Rubio could have very easily said the executive was the wrong way to go about this, but it's the right solution. Uh, I and Republican leaders in Congress should make sure we're reigning in Obama by passing exactly this, but legislatively didn't do that. Now, you know, it's it is absolutely true that every time everyone says that Donald Trump can extend DACA if he wanted to, I like lose my shit. But while it's complicated in a policy sense for Congress to do some kind of like temporary three year visa, like I I think that as policy, that would be an absolute disaster um, and would probably result in a lot of the bad press of people losing their jobs and getting deported that Republicans want to avoid. But it is legally possible for Congress to do something like that. The problem is that if they essentially, that the closer whatever they would pass is to DACA, the more they're saying, we are extending DACA by passing this bill, the more it screws up Jeff Sessions and the DOJ, who are currently trying to get the Supreme Court to take up the you know, the case of them ending DACA, skipping the appellate court and, you know, treating it as this massively urgent issue that the Supreme Court needs to address. And if Congress then turns around and says, well, actually, this supposedly unconstitutional program that's supposedly unconstitutional because it didn't involve the legislature, the legislature is endorsing by name by extending it in a bill is a complication that I think Republicans right now are moving toward seeing that as their as their hail mary that they're going, or at least that they're like going to save themselves probably by either not doing anything and just letting DACA stay open while the court case plays out to renewals, or by passing some kind of temporary you know fix. And they don't realize, or they don't appear to realize that that's going to cause some problems with the administration and force the administration to have the conversation about what it wants to do with DREAMers and DACA recipients that it hasn't yet been forced to have. And that's not actually a good situation for Republicans to put the White House in. And with that, maybe we can get some sleep. Um, so thanks thanks so much, Sarah, for, for, for joining us, uh, explaining this for everybody. I know it's been a, a, a brutally long week, um, last, uh, last couple days especially. Um, Thanks to our engineer, uh, Peter Leonard. Um, thanks to all of you uh, out there for, for listening. Uh, we are going to be back uh, next week, Tuesday. We're going to have uh, Dylan Matthews on as a, an extra special guest star, talk about uh, disability insurance. Um, and we will see you all then. Bye. Bye.